we both agreed that we did two good podcasts the last two they were really good ones and so I decided then to not do anything that I've been doing the last two weeks that have led to successful podcasts <laughs> and so this week this week I decided upon a subject yesterday and then proceeded to start doing research two hours ago <laughs> yes so well, did... welcome to welcome to my university history career. <laughs> this is how I wrote all yeah. of my essays. Yeah, which is exactly how I didn't uh, do my essays. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. I think I've got some good content. We'll just, you know, we just we'll, we'll work with it. Hello and welcome to That Was Genius. Sorry about our intro. If it hasn't put you off already, welcome to the podcast. Every week, me, myself, Sam, and my friend Tom talk to each other from different sides of the world about an incredible history story we've discovered over the week. There's a topic to each week, but everything else that happens is a mystery and completely spontaneous, so there's lots of swearing, lots of laughter, and a good time is had by all. If you enjoy this podcast, please do subscribe to us on your favourite podcasting app and maybe leave us a review. It all makes a huge difference. Anyway, on with the show. Hello, Tom. Hello, Sam. How are you? Very good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm excellent. I'm very good. I've had a lovely week, Sam. In fact, I've had a lovely day. I've been at the beach all day. Oh, you bastard. Warm at the beach. Ice creams, oh. fish and chips, oh. the works. Oh, do they do proper fish and chips in New Zealand? Oh, most definitely. Yeah, although fish and chips has variations, doesn't it? So they don't do salt and vinegar what? in New Zealand, nor do they do mushy peas. If you ask for mushy peas, they look at you like a complete weirdo. Fuck's sake. What do they have with it then? Uh, well, they, well, they would have fish and chips, hence it being fish and <laughs> <Good>. chips. Um, <laughs> but they, what would they have instead? So they, they have salt and then they might have like an aioli. Do you know what aioli is? Yeah, kind of like a, a thinnish mayonnaise type yeah, thing. Yeah, that's a fairly good description. We'll roll with that because I didn't know how to describe it. So I'm glad you tried. <laughs> uh, yeah, and a rich have... audio texture for our audience. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there are places in, the, in Britain where it's cheese, chips and gravy, isn't it? Yeah, well, you get regional variations in what you have at your chippy as well in the UK. So up here you'll struggle to find a proper saveloy which for our foreign audience is a battered sausage i guess it's the equivalent of a corn dog corn dog corn dog but what they do have in my part of the world in a place called wigan is they have what's called a pie barn in a place called wigan wigan <laughs> in a lovely lovely hamlet called wigan <laughs> a bijou little place <laughs> It's so off the beaten track. The what, locals what, love it. The tourists what, what, don't know it's there. No, what, what's, what do they have in Wigan, Sam? They have what's called a pie balm, Tom. A pie balm? Have you heard of a pie balm? I haven't, but I'm imagining a, a barn made of pies. A close, but no banana. No, a pie balm is a bread roll. You, you butter the bread roll, and then inside it, you put a pie. <laughs> oh, brilliant. So I, I, was, I almost said that as a joke. I almost said halfway through your description, oh, but they put a pie in it. And then that was actually... Yeah, but they do. That is, <laughs> that is actually what it is. So, yep. fair enough. So, so it's, it's a, pie, a pie sandwich with chips. It's like a double carb coating. Yeah. yeah. The idea being that the bread soaks up the pie juice. <laughs> the reality being an enormous instance of regionalised obesity. <laughs> <laughs> What? Why do you, if the pie has got a really runny gravy, it's a bad pie though, isn't it, Sam? It should have just the right consistency of gravy that you can eat it without it dribbling down your chin. All right, Paul Hollywood, back to Bake Off with you. <laughs> Soggy bottoms. <laughs> uh, what's our topic today, Sam? I, I don't think it's pies, is it? It's not pies, Tom, but it is historical artefacts. Do you know that the word artefact, if you change the position of the F, turns into farty acts? <laughs> Wow, what an anagram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's a simple one. Well, you just got to change the position of the F, so farty acts. Have you ever done Marvelous. a farty act, Sam? <laughs> In my amateur theatre days. <laughs> Going back briefly, speaking of farting, to our fish and chip conversation from just a moment ago. <laughs> That's the best prelude to an anecdote I've ever heard. <laughs> and talking about regional variations, I... I once made the mistake of buying fish and chips in India. Which... <laughs> which consisted of a really weirdly battered in spices piece of fish, which was much less nice than it sounds. 
and curried potatoes which were like a potato curry and were then yeah. battered into a kind of fritter thing and I have never had wind like it Tom never <laughs> had wind like it <laughs> where do you why? number one why when you're in India would you go for fish and chips and two who in India is selling fish and chips well Tom the answer to that is because I saw a fish and chip shop that said traditional British chippy <laughs> In Hindi, obviously. So, so very, very traditional. Yeah, very... <laughs> very traditional. And secondly, who is selling this stuff? A nutcase, Tom. Quite clearly. <laughs> Quite a An absolute nutter. psychopath. <laughs> Did you ever get Delhi Belly when you were in India? Oh, I. Do you know what? I've been to India twice. The last time I went, which was this summer just gone, in three weeks I didn't get ill once. The last time I went, which was in it was a few years ago, and I went for nine months and was working out there. I I had it three or four times once was so bad that I was hallucinating that one was right up there for me with the one I got in uh, Turkey at a motorway service station by buying a Turkish motorway service station kebab yeah. which is not a sentence that you ever want to utter and no, not an no, actual want to repeat <laughs> and repeat is what it did <laughs> <laughs> so, I had deli belly in India, but it's difficult to put it down to bad food or stupid food choices. I was in Jaisalma, maybe, and uh, they were selling watermelons on the street. And I went and got a whole watermelon. I took it to my hotel room and then just cut it up and took a few slices. And then went, oh, that's delicious. And then realized it was really hot. And I had a massive great watermelon. And thought, fuck, I suppose I'm going to have to finish it. So I ate a whole watermelon <laughs> and um, wasn't feeling very well. Anyway, so we're doing farty acts today. We are doing farty acts. And what is your farty act of choice, Tom? My farty act is a Hedwig Beakers. Have you ever heard of those? I know of the Owl of Harry Potter fame. No, there, there are no owls when it comes to Hedwig Beakers. But I will explain who Hedwig was once we've flipped something. What, what's your choice? What's, could I have a taster from you? You can have a taster from me, Tom. In fact, taster is almost the right word because I'm going to talk to you today about probably the only major historical artefact that was almost destroyed through being eaten. Ooh! <laughs> That's good. That's got me salivating. Yes. I'll leave it at that. Let's keep our audience on the edges of their seats. OK, let's flip. Uh, whilst I'm finding something to flip, I do actually have my wallet today, Tom. So right back to the start, we are flipping a coin. How did you find this one, though, Tom? Have you found this one all right today? Yes. I, I'll be honest with you, Sam, because it's an artefact that I've chosen to talk about and it's a podcast with no visual element. <laughs> I'm going to use this artefact to explore different themes in history. So it's, there's going to be quite a few tangents that I'm going to take when I'm talking about my Hedwig Beakers. So it'll be maybe a slightly different to how I've approached previous podcasts. How about you? I actually struggled a little bit because I wanted to keep it classy this week. <laughs> and what? And I also wanted to find something with a definitive answer as to what it actually was, which is very tricky in archaeology. Because artefacts tend to fall into one of a few categories. You have ceremonial purposes, air quotes, which means we don't have a fucking clue what it's for. 80% of stuff <laughs> discovered on Time Team. And then you've also got literature you can find literary artifacts treasure artifacts weapons toys and dicks yeah you get buried with what you love tom and historically people love swords gold toy horses and giant ceramic knobs <laughs> and i was really struggling to find something that wasn't a cock <laughs> yes and you know what sam i knew i knew that you were going to go down the cock avenue quite quickly and I'm glad that you decided to be a bit more mature about it, because that would have been predictable, wouldn't it, if we both went for some Victorian dildo? We're better Indeed. than that, Sam. We're better than that. You can see where it comes from, though, because if you go on holiday to you know, much of South America, Southeast Asia, a lot of Africa, uh, quite a lot of the world, if you pick up a holiday knick-knack, it'll be a pair of exotic knackers made out <laughs> of whatever the locals like to make things out of. Knick-knack-knackers. <laughs> knick-knack-knackers. <laughs> But I've chosen something I think a bit classier. <laughs> you can get kangaroo balls in Australia, can't you? I've seen uh, bottle openers that are a pair of kangaroo balls. Well, trust the Australians to go classy. Yeah, is, it, that, is there anything <laughs> more Aussie than that? Cracking cracking open a Foster's <laughs> with some kangaroo's balls. Cracker with a knacker, yeah. Right, I have a coin. It's a two-pence coin, a classic. Would you like heads or tails, Tom? I would like heads, please, Sam. 
the coin has flipped. That was a lovely sound effect. It hit my wedding ring. I'd like to point out to, to listeners that you haven't inserted that sound effect. That was actually the sound effect. That was wonderful. No, that was genuinely the sound of a coin tinkling against my ring. And it landed... <laughs> Nah, nah. <laughs> now that is a farty act <laughs> and it landed on tails <laughs> right what did i choose i, I chose heads didn't you, cho- I? you chose heads i think i'm gonna go first this week tom i think Hit i'm me. gonna go first all right go for and it and i'm gonna talk to you about the shang oracle bones now the shang oracle bones tom they've got a very interesting history which is lucky because this would be a shit podcast if they didn't <laughs> I've chosen a piece <laughs> of rock from Pompeii. Well, again, it's interesting that you should mention rock, Tom. Now, the Shang Oracle Bones, as I've mentioned, are probably unique in history in being the only artefacts that were very nearly eaten. <laughs> and indeed, millions of them probably were. And yet they prove the existence of an entire mythical civilization. Ah. Now, Tom, if I said, here's something very rare and valuable and very difficult to replace... Let's eat it. What country do you think I might be talking about? (laughs) That's right, Tom. It's China and traditional Chinese medicine. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I got (laughs) it. I'm with you. I'm with you. Which has a fascination with grinding up bits of rare animal, usually their dicks, to cure all manner of ailments. And the more endangered, the better (laughs) as well. Indeed. And in China in the late 19th century, people were particularly keen on what they called dragon bones. Now, dragon bones were dinosaur fossils which were ground up and were apparently very good for treating your choice of malaria or knife wounds. (laughs) (laughs) Which is only logical, right? Because when you eat stone, you'll be strong like stone. Facts. Yeah. How is that going to cure a knife wound? Well, it won't, will it? (laughs) Where's the logic? (laughs) I mean, the logic with traditional Chinese medicine is that you imbibe the properties of the thing that you eat so the reason that powerful animals penises are eaten is because it will give you strong sexual ardor it will give you a powerful animal penis yes and so i assume that it was a case of if you eat this stone fossil of a dragon you'll be strong then you will be strong yes like a dragon you won't you won't crack i assume anyway who knows all nonsense Unfortunately, fossils were very hard to come by, and so villagers in the town of Anyang in China's Yellow River Valley, which is kind of towards central China but largely to the east, decided to substitute the fossils with various bones that they kept digging up in their fields, mostly oxbone and turtle shells. Now, in 1899, a passing antiques dealer looking for ancient bronzes ended up buying some of these fossils or dragon bones from the locals and took them to Beijing. There, he sold them to a guy called Wang Yirong, who was the Chancellor of the Imperial Academy. He was an expert on bronzes, and so he knew the dealer well. Sam, are you I'm laughing just at point... his name being Wang? <laughs> Wang, you're wrong. Okay, <laughs> Wang, you're wrong. I've got some silly names on my on my. Uh... Topic, Sam. I've got some excellent silly names today. Sorry, carry on. I'm going to absolutely massacre the Mandarin language today by trying to pronounce some names. So Wang Yirong was the Chancellor of the Imperial Academy. He was an expert on ancient bronzes, and so he knew this antique stealer well. But the story goes that he just so happened to also have malaria. Ah. And what treats malaria, Tom? Dragon bones. No, quinine. What's that? It's what goes into anti-malarials. Oh, Sorry, sorry. Was, that, was, this... was that too much of a highbrow joke for you? <laughs> sorry. Sorry, Sam. I don't have a degree in chemistry, so I didn't get your joke. <laughs> well, I can tell you, Tom, what absolutely doesn't treat malaria is ground-up fossils. <laughs> no. But that yeah. is what Wang bought from this antique dealer to treat his malaria. <laughs> and Wang was wrong, wasn't he? And Wang was wrong. However, being an expert in ancient Chinese civilizations and culture, Wang noticed something very odd about these bones. They were covered in scorch marks and had a scoring on them similar to some of the ancient writing he'd been examining from a period known as the Zhu Dynasty, which at the time was the first properly understood major Chinese kingdom. And that had ruled the Yellow Valley from around 1050 BC for about 700 years, so a long-lived and quite ancient kingdom. What had come before that was a complete mystery. 
there were local legends of a, a great and powerful kingdom and a few very tiny scraps of bronze which seemed to be earlier than the zoo but really there was nothing that was known about what came before. Now these mythical people were known to scholars as the Shang but these bones were very very old much older than the zoo and Wang began to decode the texts that was written on these bones and realized that they were ancient divinations they were prophecies about everything from love matches to political mm. alliances to how to cure toothache. And what it turned out would happen is that a king's diviner would inscribe these bones with a date and a question. He would pour blood on it and then burn it. And depending on how the bone cracked, the question would be answered and political policy was made up off the back of these divinations. So all of these Shang kings would have a soothsayer who would do this for them. Sounds like a load of old bollocks to me, Sam. <laughs> it's not bollocks, Tom. It's <laughs> turtle shell. <laughs> Only very specific requests were inscribed onto old bollocks. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. <laughs> oh dear, who's old bollocks? Were they still attached? <laughs> Did you find an old man with really dangly balls? Well, the Shang were into human sacrifices, so who can were say? Were they? Oh, okay. Entirely possible. Unfortunately, before he could finish his work, Wang got caught up in the Boxer Rebellion of 1899. Now, a very quick word on the Boxer Rebellion. It was a typical case of the West fucking over the East. Peking's diplomatic quarter, which is a Chinese capital, Peking, was home to large groups of government officers and Christian missionaries from all over the world, who were quite happily dicking over the Chinese people. They would regularly scan them, con them, steal from them, and then retreat to the safety of the diplomatic quarter where nothing could be done about it. In fact, and this is why I'm mentioning this, there was a particularly brutal group of German missionaries, missionaries Tom, who formed a robber gang terrorising the streets of Peking at night. <laughs> Which is very Christian, very charitable. Dressed as monks, were they? Yes, they were. <laughs> Band of robbing German monks. I feel an impression... <laughs> an impersonation bubbling up deep inside me. Jawohl, mein Chinese citizen. Hand over the tiger dong and no one will get hurt. There we go. Racial insensitivity towards everyone in one foul impression. <laughs> oh, very good. I'm not going to try and outdo that. <laughs> Beautiful. So the Chinese government, in absolute turmoil and uproar, uh, Western colonial influence in general, but these robbers and the actions of Western diplomats kind of egging this on, allied with a group of Chinese militia known as the Boxers. The Boxers were staunchly anti-colonial and believed themselves to be bulletproof. They besieged the diplomatic quarter for two months until a multinational Western force landed and proved very much that the Boxers were in fact not bulletproof. <laughs> and then proved the Chinese point about Western influence by looting Peking and extolling enormous war reparations for the next 39 years. The Chinese government fled the Empress Dowager fleeing for an <clears throat> long overdue tour of the provinces, air quotes, and Wang, as one of her closest advisers, committed suicide before his work into the bones was complete. Two years passed and his son sold his collection of bones to a family friend who published a book on them, making them instantly famous throughout Chinese academia and the Chinese antiques trade. Unfortunately, no one knew where they actually came from because the antiques dealers who were selling these bones covered their tracks to keep the source a secret. Ah. So for five years, there was a fevered search for the source of these bones until they were finally discovered in 1908 by a scholar named Lu Shenyu. And he realised that the city of Anyang was actually once a great imperial capital and the last lost city of the Shang dynasty. Now, a few in the academic and antiques world knew where this city was, and so they descended upon it and basically trashed the place. On the plus side, they discovered an absolute treasure trove of archaeological evidence about this civilization. In just a couple of years, the Shang went from a mysterious foggy myth into a concrete civilization with a capital city called Yin. And among the discoveries were 11 royal tombs, the foundations of dozens of palaces and temples containing weapons and evidence of human and animal sacrifices, Ooh. tens of thousands of bronzes, jade artefacts, stone artefacts. On the downside, unfortunately, 
The digs were unregulated, uncontrolled, and saw most of the artefacts spirited away into Western collections and antiques markets and lost forever. Yeah, and th this is the place where the original teeth were being found, but nobody knew the extent of the archaeological remains, is that? Yeah, so this is where these ox bones and turtle shells were being discovered, and right. the location had been kept secret by antiques dealers because obviously they wanted to monopolise the trade. And now that a few people had discovered where it was, they all descended upon it and basically tore the place apart, as bad archaeology does. Yes, 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 There's yes. a good way to do archaeology, as we know, and there's a bad way to do archaeology. Yeah. So there is one glimmer of hope. There's a rare saviour here. That's a Canadian missionary called James Menzies, who went out and began to do good archaeology by very carefully cataloguing all of his oracle bones. And he published his first study on them in 1917. He worked very closely with the locals to catalogue exactly where things were found, what else was found with them, and they ended up donating to him and he found over 35,000 of these bones. Wow. Now, in contradiction to most of these collectors, he insisted that his collection stayed in China, and as a result of this, actually now with, with later finds, there's a really good collection in China of about 55,000 oracle bones each detailing a little bit of life in the Shang Dynasty. And he's considered an archaeological hero in China as a result. Probably rightly so. Because How big are these bones? So for the inscriptions to be readable, is it like a Twitter feed? Is it sort of a, it's got a character <laughs> limit? Well, there's quite a lot of photos of them because obviously thousands of them exist. So I'll post some up on our Instagram and social feeds. But they are full turtle shells. So some of them are fragments, but some of them are as large as, you know, kind of a foot across. Really oh, quite, okay. quite yeah, big. Yeah, yeah. And what the bones tell us is that the Shang Dynasty ruled China's Yellow River from about sometime in the 16th century BC to very specifically 1046 BC when the last king died and it ended. So a fairly smooth transition from there's about four years between the Shang Dynasty ending and the Zhu Dynasty beginning. Right. But it's a very long lived kingdom, 600 years. They were a massive empire ruling around 1.2 million kilometres squared, which is about the size of Peru or Mali. And I know you're going to ask, Tom, so I've done the maths. How many whales is that, Sam? Oh, bollocks. I did football pitches. Sorry, oh, I'll see what I can convert. Football, how many football pitches? It's 12 million football pitches. Brilliant. Pitch that straight away. Absolutely. There you go. Now you know what I'm talking about. And these bones tell us almost everything about this civilization. They tell us how their government worked, who their kings were, they tell us about their gods, their ancestors, what they grew, how the economy worked, their legends, their enemies, their wars, the whole lot. All from a bunch of bones that were almost eaten out of existence, and countless thousands were, and were discovered in archaeological terms overnight, ten years or so. And that, Tom, is the story of the Oracle Bones. And so what sort of wishes were inscribed on these turtle shells and things? Have you got any examples? There was one to overcome toothache, and it was a request to the ancestors of this particular king for whichever one was causing his toothache to come forward and explain what he'd done to displease him. Oh, I see. So each of his teeth had some dead ancestor looking after it. Apparently so, yeah. Or, yeah. well, possibly that, or possibly one of his ancestors had just got a bit annoyed with him and decided, right, toothache for you, rather than being assigned a certain tooth. Just, I'm just going to make that tooth hurt. You, just yeah. that one tooth. Yeah. But yeah, love matches, good weather, good harvest, you know, the, the normal stuff. Worth killing a turtle for, isn't it? Well, absolutely. <laughs> I'd like it to be sunny tomorrow. Well, these bones, you know, it, turtles were being eaten at the time. Turtle is apparently delicious and was, as a result, nearly driven to extinction by <laughs> by West by Western explorers. Actually, this time not the Chinese. Was it when when Western explorers yeah. got there? They they enjoyed the turtle so much. When Western explorers and Western sailors discovered the Galapagos Islands, they were quite hungry. And there were a lot of turtles around. They discovered that they were delicious. And the Galapagos became a regular motorway service station, in fact, for, uh, <laughs> for, yeah. for 16th and 17th century explorers. The, the highway that was the ocean, yeah. So essentially it's recycling. They're taking old discarded food bones in the same way that you would read tea leaves, I guess, in kind of modern divination, or as I like to call it, modern bollocks. bollocks. And... <laughs> <laughs> 
and then you and then you'd work like that but this is the first written evidence in all of china and china obviously a very very ancient civilization they were some of the first to master agriculture and this is really some of the first written evidence that we have from outside mesopotamia very good very very interesting and it's an incredibly complete collection other than the bits that people ate <laughs> yeah, yeah which, which, are, which are now long gone yeah it's interesting isn't it? it would have been lots of small snippets of information combined together it would be like a historian in a couple of thousand years just going through twitter wouldn't it it would be like that absolutely yeah it would be completely like that it would be little slightly disjointed bits here and there and if you put it all together unfortunately a lot of these have dates on them which is really useful oh, from an archaeological yeah, perspective. <laughs> very, very good forethought. Very Indeed. kind of them. And through the way that various different inscriptions have been written, you can even pinpoint almost the handwriting of certain diviners. Ah. So you can be very clear about what's happening when. And obviously the, the picture isn't entirely complete, but by the standards of ancient civilizations, we've got a really good picture of what's going on in the Shang Dynasty and, and what its worries were and what its joys were and what people enjoyed so let's go over this again so you'd get a turtle shell what was the other thing you said so it's a turtle shell or usually the hip bone of an ox hip bone of an ox right and what you do is you would carve a date and a question into it yeah and then you would pour blood your blood or anyone's blood don't know not sure i mean you said they they practice cannibalism so you know well not not cannibalism but human sacrifice human sacrifice sorry human sacrifice yeah a bit different so they would pour some blood onto it and then they would put it in a fire and depending on which way the bone cracked that's right yeah it would point towards certain characters in certain parts of the question and you would get your answer that way what a load of twaddle hey? <laughs> interesting where were they discarded so where did they were they then thrown in a lake or thrown in a fountain or, or well it's it's hard to say because these bones have been being dug up for hundreds thousands of years and the Yellow River Valley floods every year. It's why it's such an amazing breadbasket for the world. The world's largest breadbasket, in fact, is the richest agricultural land in the world. And so as civilizations rise and fall, even if things were very neatly stacked in shelves a thousand, two thousand years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over time, the palace will have crumbled, they'll have gotten flooded, they'll have ended up in a field, they'll have been ploughed. every year washed away by the silt so no one really knows they are dug up in fields all around this city this anyang city very interesting i didn't know anything about that if any of our listeners by the way know of another piece of archaeological evidence that's been turned into a foodstuff do let us know i'm now trying to think well actually do you know what they did recently discover i think it was one of the arctic or antarctic expeditions they found the shipwreck and they pulled out some 200-year-old champagne from the yes, bottom. Yes, that, that happens quite frequently, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, and, and it's still good. It's still good to drink. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that before with red wine on medieval shipwrecks and things. It gets pulled up and some wine expert swigs it around their mouth and says, yes, it's foul because it's 400 years old. <laughs> it's bloody awful. Like, we didn't need you to tell us that that was going to be the case. <laughs> okay, well, I, I guess that I should... Receive the baton. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna shut up and I'm gonna pass my ancient ceramic dick baton over to you, Tom. <laughs> Thank you. I will grab it with both hands. Uh, <laughs> so, may you be forever fertile. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, yes, I'm gonna consume it and hopefully it will give me great vigor. I've chosen Hedwig Beakers. So you haven't heard of Hedwig Beakers, have you? No, I haven't. Not a clue. No. As we mentioned at the start, there's no direct link to the owl from Harry Potter. Hedwig Beakers were glass drinking vessels around the same size as a modern tumbler. Drinking vessels is such an archaeological term, yeah, you pots. <laughs> drinking They're cups. A drinking vessel. A drinking vessel. <laughs> They're cups, aren't they, Tom? That, if yeah. you mean cups, say cups. It's a mug. It's a, gla- it's a glass mug. So it was shot a, glasses. It's actually just a glass, <laughs> isn't it? It's just a glass. They, they were tumblers, and they were made in the second half of the 12th century AD. There are about 14 intact Hedwig beakers in existence, and there are fragments from about 10 or so more. So very, very rare. And they're beautifully crafted. They're very, very pretty things. There's one in the British Museum that's that's very beautiful. And they would be quite delicate because they're made out of glass, but they have survived intact for hundreds of years. That's remarkable that, they've, that glass has survived for 
for how long? Did, when are they from? So they're from the 12th century, second half of the 12th century AD. So wow. We're talking, yeah, eight, eight, nine hundred years. I mean, I break a wine glass on average once a week, so that is remarkable. Yeah. There I, must I, have been millions of them. I don't know anyone who's got a complete set of plates and bowls <laughs> without a few chips. And the reason why these would have lasted so long is because there are sort of holy associations with some of them in particular, which are why they're called Hedwig Beakers, because of Saint Hedwig, who is associated with three of the beakers. What was he a saint of? Uh, so she, she is actually oh, she. the patron saint of Silesia, which is actually modern-day Poland plus a bit extra. So that oh. is Saint Hedwig. And she was a very, very pious lady. I'll come on to her in a moment. <laughs> but they were... Going back to the Decameron last week. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey. No, unfortunately... I've poor St. Got... Hedwig. <laughs> she didn't ask for that. Yeah. Fortunately, St. Hedwig was incredibly pious. And I cannot find fault in St. Hedwig, other than she does do a few little silly things. Anyway, so these speakers were often used in mass. They were often um, modified slightly and mounted with precious metals. So they were obviously highly prized by churches. So that's that's why they were looked after so well. Um, so as mentioned, St. Hedwig was a Silesian princess. She is the patron saint of Silesia. She lived from 1174 to 1243, and she was canonised in 1267, so only 24 years after she died. And she was just a very, very, very pious lady, a lovely lady. She did all the normal things. She founded several hospitals. She helped the poor widows. She helped orphans. She founded and endowed lots of monasteries and convents. Just a, a lovely, lovely lady was Hedwig. A goody two-shoes. A, yeah, a goody, goody two Just a lovely, lovely person. She did do things a little... A few other slightly more silly things. She would always walk barefoot, apparently, in the winter, which is just a bit silly. I, I imagine Poland gets quite cold, and uh, walking around barefoot isn't particularly sensible. And I, I read somewhere that she once spent ten weeks teaching a poor lady the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> a poor and clearly stupid lady, the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. I, I don't know whether she was a poor lady, as in financially poor, or the person writing the sentence just took sympathy on her for having to spend ten weeks learning the Lord's <laughs> Prayer. Give us this day our daily what now? Um, um, shoes. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> not think again. holy thoughts, think holy thoughts, think holy thoughts. Okay, <laughs> it's bread. It's it's still bread. It's been bread for six weeks now. <laughs> Let's try it once more, shall we? Shows, shows. Come on, Susan, shows, you've shows. got this. <laughs> shows, shows, shows. Uh, so there's a bit of debate over where these speakers were made. The consensus now seems to be that they were made in Sicily, in the Norman Kingdom of Sicily. There's a little bit of debate, but even the British Museum that holds one of these Hedwig beakers now lists it as being from Sicily. So I think there's a general consensus that they're from Sicily. Have you ever heard of the Norman Kingdom of Sicily, Sam? I have. I do know the Norman Kingdom of Sicily. Yeah, it's, it's probably less well known than the Normans of Normandy. Norman, are we? I'd missed that because you went fuzzy, but it sounded like a lovely song. I was singing the Wombles of Wimbledon, but I was replacing it with the Normans of Normandy. Go again, please. Because I'm hilarious. I would love, I'd like to hear it again. The Normans of Normandy, Norman are we, killing all of the Saxon kings that we find. <laughs> Building Morton Baileys and... <laughs> Um, writing doomsday books. <laughs> writing doomsday books. Didn't rhyme, but it was factually correct. Well, that's more important, Tom. Absolutely. That's more important. <laughs> so, I, this is my first little tangent from the Hedby Beaker, Sam, is I'm going to explain to listeners, just briefly, what the Norman Kingdom of Sicily was. It spanned the bottom third of the Italian peninsula and Sicily, hence the name, Kingdom of Sicily. It also had Malta, I think, for a period, and also territory in North Africa for about 30 years during the late 12th century. Uh, so modern-day Tunisia, plus a bit more. Most people will know about the Normans. They evolved out of uh, Roman groups of Vikings that settled in northern France in the first half of the 10th century. In 911, Rollo, who seems to be one of the main leaders of these Vikings, agrees with Charles the Simple of West Francia that he'll <laughs> protect the Franks from other Viking raiders in return from the land. So that's where we get Normandy. How long do you think that Charles the Simple took to learn the Lord's Prayer? <laughs> <laughs> Um, 
Give us this day our daily Viking uh, frog's legs. <laughs> or something oh, you... else. I don't know. Stereotypically French. <laughs> David Ginola. Give us this day our David Ginola. For listeners who aren't from Newcastle or Tottenham, David Ginola was a football player from the 90s and noughties. So... <laughs> <laughs> Where was and I? thus began the second tangent of your story. <laughs> yes, yeah. And now for the next twenty minutes, I'm going to talk about David Ginola. We've got Charles the Simple. That's that's the first of many fantastic names I'm going to explore, Sam, in this podcast. I'm going to come on to them at the end. There are some excellent, excellent names that I've encountered when researching the Hedwig Beakers. So the Normans then, over the course of a uh, of hundred, hundred and fifty years develop their own sort of quite unique culture as they merge with the native French people of Normandy. Now, Normans were present in Sicily from as early as the late 10th century, usually as mercenaries, usually helping out in what was a very complex and fluid political landscape. There's a lot going on. When I, when I was researching this, Sam, I could not make head or tail of what was going on on the Italian peninsula for this sort of 100, <laughs> 200 years. It's very, very complex. Lots of little kingdoms, kingdoms ebbing and flowing, growing and shrinking. In 1038, Byzantine forces began to reconquer the island with mercenaries, including Varangians, and Normans. The Byzantine, for non-history fans, for the more popular end of our podcast spectrum, the Byzantines were in Constantinople. They were the remnants of the old Roman Empire. Absolutely. And I will also go on to explain who the Varangians were as well, Sam, as, as one, of my, one of my other tangents for this podcast. I love the Varangians. They're one of my favourite stories, so I'm looking forward to you talking about them. Oh, good. Excellent. I, I hope you'll add in some extra bits as well, Sam. So 1038, these, these Byzantine forces tried to reconquer the island of Sicily from the Saracens. It doesn't end too well. I think the leader of the Byzantine forces dies about five years into the campaign. And the Normans eventually just start to fashion their own little kingdoms, their own fiefdoms, and they eventually merge into this much larger kingdom of, of Sicily, which is a very different process to the Norman conquest of England, which was a more, what would be the word? Brutal. <laughs> more brutal. A, a much clearer conquest. You know, there was the Battle of Hastings and a few revolts Some that were battles. subjugated. Yeah. And then it was kind of, hey, yeah. the Normans are in charge. So this was a much slower, more more complicated process. So that's the, that's the Norman kingdom of Sicily. I'll leave the Varangian guard a little bit longer. I'll come back to them in a second. These oh, beakers... Oh, don't tease me, Tom. Oh, historical foreplay. So... <laughs> um, they look like... It looks like it's Muslim craftsmanship with these beakers. It looks like the style of glassware that at the time was found in places like Israel, Palestine, that sort of area of the world. And there was a lot of crossover at this time, wasn't there? Absolutely. So we're, we're talking the Crusades. The Christians were making Muslim things and the Muslims were making Christian things. And actually, the Muslims at the time, I think, were minting coins that still had the Christian cross on them. Really? There's a whole load of cultural crossover at this point and it all becomes very confusing. And this is the time of the Third Crusade, I think. So this is the time of um, Richard Lionheart, Saladin, all of these sort of things. I did read somewhere, coming off what you were saying, that lots of these Italian city-states like Genoa, Pisa... They were still trading along that stretch of coastline, you know, Palestine and Israel. They were still trading in places like Jerusalem, even when Jerusalem was under siege. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of cultural crossover, definitely. Oh, massively, yeah. And money talks, you know, you can <laughs> you can always bribe your way through a picket line if you've got the cash to hand. Abs yeah, absolutely. People still want to make money. Life finds a way. People are pragmatic. So the imagery on these glasses is very Christian. But the method of, of creating the glasses seems to be quite Muslim. And here's a bit of the evidence that suggests that these were made in Norman Sicily. So some of the, this imagery, things like lions, griffins, eagles, is very similar to artwork found on the ceiling of the court of the Sicilian Norman rulers in Palermo. And also, more explicitly, a little bit of better evidence, there's... Uh, little small shields beside all of the lions on these beakers with a little triangle on the shield. And this is very similar to the heraldic line of the Sicilian Normans. So that's a fairly good indication that these were for the Sicilian Normans. And they were probably made during the reign of the last Sicilian king, which was a chap called Wilhelm II. Wilhelm. That's a, a very Italian name, obviously. Yes, yes very, yeah, very French as well, isn't it? I did think that when I saw this name, <laughs> Wilhelm II. <laughs> and they were probably inherited by the German Holy Roman Emperor Heinrich VI. 
So Heinrich and Wilhelm. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad we managed to get this accent out again. I hear you have some wonderful beakers. Yeah. I love your glassware. Where did you get some? Oh, uh, you know, just a bijou little place in Jerusalem. I know a man. <laughs> <laughs> it's very exclusive. <laughs> oh, very good. So that is the that's the history of these headwood beakers. Very, very rare, beautifully crafted, a fusion of Muslim and Christian skills and iconography. This is beautiful. It sounds like you're trying to sell me one, Tom. <laughs> but you like one? They're very nice. Very, very nice. <laughs> As you can see, it's a fusion of Islamic and Christian culture. There's only 14 in existence, and this is one of the 14. Blown on the size of a virgin. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this one, this one was drunk by St. Hedwig. Hey, St. Hedwig used to drink her water from it. Very nice. <laughs> and towards the end of the 10-week prayer course, <laughs> it rapidly turned to vodka. That's a miracle! <laughs> you wonder how she became a saint? <laughs> Jesus wasn't the only one turning water into wine by the end of this. <laughs> she was such a shit teacher. <laughs> oh anyway. Carry on. I promised you silly names, Sam. You did. You've made lots of promises that you haven't fulfilled. So I'm gonna. I'm now going to go through a few of them. Now, the first three are fairly well known. I think you will have come across these in your studies. Uh, Louis the Stammerer, King of Aquitaine. That's always a good one. I remember liking that when I studied history. I, I, I have heard of him. Ha, 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 have you? <laughs> yes. There we go. <laughs> there was... We made the pun we had to. Let's move on. <laughs> there was a Charles the Bald. That's a fairly famous one. Um, there was a Charles the Fat as well. They're very complimentary with their names of kings, weren't they're, they? They're fanta- the they are fantastic. Charles the Bull, Charles the Fat. Um, this one's much, much better. Do you think Charles had much to say about that? <laughs> Wouldn't that be interesting? Wouldn't that be an interesting thing to study, Sam? Is who gave these nicknames and why? I suspect they're retrospective. Well, the why, I think, is probably fairly obvious. Wow! Sometimes they're ironic. There is a suggestion that some of them are ironic. Like Charles the Bull just had actually wonderful flowing locks <laughs> right down to his eyebrows. He was far from bald. Big, bushy eyebrows like a Soviet minister. Very, very hairy person. And talking about hairy, here's Wilfred the Hairy. This is someone I encountered. And there's one medieval source that says... Bald as a baby's head. <laughs> so polished you could see your own face in it. Like like Duncan Goodhue. It was bald <laughs> How many of our viewers do you think are going to get that reference? I'm not even entirely sure I do. Do you not know who Duncan Goodhue is? Is he a footballer? He's a 90s British swimmer. Ah, well, unfortunately, I have just recently lost my collection of 90s swimming recorded VHSs. And uh, (laughs) so he's completely slipped my mind. Cards, like, you know, football cards. (laughs) Top trumps. Top trumps, yeah. Boredness, 10. Breaststroke. As a slight aside, do you want to know the shittest set of top trumps in the world? (laughs) Go for it, hit me. Right, this is the set of top trumps that my in-laws have in their house. I insisted on buying them a new set to replace them, but they genuinely played top trumps with a set of cards for the 1994 range of Volkswagens. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's pretty dull, isn't it? Oh, yes. With loads of really disappointing sepia pictures of shit old cars on them. That is a bit shit. Anyway, carry on. Yeah, so so Wilfred the Hairy, he would have been a 10 out of 10 for hairiness. And this is a quote from a medieval source. He was hairy in places, not normally so in men. <laughs> not sure. I've, you know, most. where would that be? The soles of your feet? Yeah, I'm, I'm picturing a hobbit. Where is hair uncommonly found in men? On the forehead? Inside your mouth? Is that because people don't look at each other's mouths rather than being there? I don't know. Anyway, the next individual, there's a William Iron Arm. It's a good name. William Iron Arm. Yeah. And he was called Iron Arm after single-handedly killing the Emir of Syracuse. Wow. Iron Arm. William Iron Arm. That's a great... Tom, can you please stop ticking your pen? <laughs> Am I doing it again? Sorry. I just... <laughs> I'm putting the pen to the other side of the table. Put it out of reach. Sorry. <laughs> I've got plenty of silly noises I can make I've got plenty of silly noises I can make Hold on Allow me to place my hand in my armpit (laughs) Welcome to the playground As an 11 year old 
There is Henry the Bearded, who was actually the husband of Hedwig. He grew his beard as an act of piety because he also was a very pious individual. That's not an act of piety. That's an act of laziness. Well, yeah, or... or, or I'm so pious I haven't showered today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he had hair swept to the side slightly <laughs> with his beard. Fucking ponce. Worked as a barista. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's Boleslaw the Tall. Boleslaw? Boleslaw the Tall. Yeah, that's quite a good name, isn't it? All two foot of him. <laughs> yes, the ironic name. Boleslaw <laughs> was a midget. Uh, we have Miesko Tanglefoot, who was apparently Ooh. called Tanglefoot because he had bandy legs. All the better for riding oh. a horse with. They were really cruel with their names, weren't they? These medieval chroniclers. He must have been very bandy-legged for his feet to get entangled. Bearing in mind that most of the people writing this stuff were monks because they were the only people capable of writing at the time. They're being very uncharitable about their kings. They're probably, just, they're probably the same monks that were... What were your German monks doing in, uh, in China? Robbing the place. Robbing the locals. Bloody. They've got a track record of bad behaviour, these German monks. Yeah. Muggins for Jesus. We've got Vladislaw Spindleshanks is a great name. <laughs> that is a made-up name. Spindleshanks. That's a made-up name. No, I, I've read this. Vladislaw Spindleshanks. And he was called Spindleshanks because he had unusually long and thin legs. Like a spider. <laughs> Hello, I'm Vladislaw. <laughs> As he walked into the room. Yeah. I imagine Stru- like his legs appeared like two <laughs> seconds before he did, striding into the room like... <laughs> just kind of rubbery legs just stretching across the room. Doors only... Here's... The doors, the doors only... The doors only opened very, very slightly an inch and he's sliding his leg into the door. It'd have wonderful, it'd have wonderful, elegant shoes with a little curly bit at the end, wouldn't he? Oh, he definitely would, wouldn't he? And then the other one I came across was Conrad the Curly, who I think was one of Hedwig's children. <laughs> Conrad the Curly. Oh, why do you think he was called Curly, Tom? Because he had a, he had scoliosis. <laughs> <laughs> Conrad the Bendy Spine. So there's Comrade the Curly. So these are fantastic names. Really, really good names. Anyway, there you go, Sam. That's me finished. I, I thought I'd finish on a number of silly names. I've just realised we, we didn't go back and talk about the Varangian Guard. Oh, no, we didn't. You bastard. I know. Well, I'm glad I remembered. Let's, let's fit that in. So who were the Varangian Guard? So they were an elite fighting unit. They were sort of the personal bodyguards of the Byzantine emperors. They were made up of lots of Northern Europeans, usually. Not not entirely, but a lot of Northern Europeans. Lots of Vikings, Anglo-Saxons as well. Lots of English. Yes. What would now be English. Yes, absolutely. The, the emperors prized these people because they didn't really have any local loyalties. They just fought for whoever paid them. They weren't going to get caught up in any Byzantine political rivalries. They just fought for the emperor. Interestingly, at one point I read, a Swedish law was introduced to stop migrants inheriting if they were working in the Byzantine Empire and that's because so many of them were going to the Byzantine Empire to work in the Varangian Guard. Absolutely. Many Anglo-Saxons joined after the Norman Conquest because they were disinherited so they didn't have anywhere to go so they, they went off to the Byzantine Empire to work as mercenaries and here was a good one Sam I didn't realise but the Hagia Sophia which is in Constantinople which obviously was Byzantium in the Hagia Sophia the big mosque in what is now obviously Istanbul what was it it was built by Justinian wasn't it Emperor Justinian originally it was and was later converted into a mosque yeah it was built by Justinian and then bits were tacked onto it as time went on and every emperor added a little bit to it and it's an absolute hodgepodge it's the most architecturally bizarre building because every single emperor who came along just like stuck a little garden shed on the side of it to add their stamp. It's beautiful. It's an amazing building, but it is just the least architectural thing you've ever seen in your life. Interestingly, there are two uh, runic inscriptions in Hagia Sophia that are attributed to members of the Rangin Guard that basically say, you know, Bob was here. Yep. Um, <laughs> So they're called runic inscriptions. It's basically graffiti. <laughs> it's basically yeah. Harold Hardchest was here. See, this is what I love, though, because people think that the the Dark Ages, the very depths of the Dark Ages, were a time when the world was very insular and nothing happened and everything was kind of regressing. 
But you did have this amazing trade going on between northern Europe and modern-day Turkey, and it was absolutely thriving, and the Vikings went overland. Yes, absolutely. Viking traders went overland, and the journey took something like two years each way. Absolutely amazing, and there's lots of Viking artefacts found their way into Istanbul, and lots of Turkish and Byzantine artefacts found their way into the kind of royal regalia of, of English and Norman kings, and it's amazing. And you had these Varangian guard who were completely feared because they were firstly enormous and yeah if you, if you... and hugely bearded and looked very strange from a, a mediterranean and middle eastern perspective fierce hand axes or massive axes which the locals didn't know how to use and could you know cut a man's head off in one blow and they were just these guys were just surrounding the emperor uh, speaking a language that wasn't understood and i don't know it's it's debated in history whether this actually happened but there was a city given to the Varangian Guard when it was, I think, finally disbanded or a large number of them were disbanded and they gave them a city called something like New London on the Black Sea. And there was this European colony there. Excellent. Wonderful. So where are these beakers now? There are 14 left. There's one in the British Museum. Oh, now they're all over the place, Sam. I think they're in lots of different museums. They seem to have been split, separated, disjointed. Left around the house like so many coffee mugs. 10 or 11 different museums that they're currently in. Um, but the one in the British Museum you'll be able to find online is a very, very good-looking, um, good-looking vessel. Quite tricky to drink out of though, because they're very, they've got a very broad rim. So when you drink, it just ends up spilling down your your beard, which it might well be why Henry became Henry the Bearded. He probably grew a big beard so he could control the flow from his Hedwig beaker. Well, things like this—they're probably not actually designed to be drunk from, are they? Nah, they're designed to show off. Yeah, keep buttons in. And other things like that. <laughs> Needles. Loose buttons. change. Loose change, yeah. Well, there we go. And I'll post up some pictures of them on Instagram as well. Which, by the way, if you are interested in following us on Instagram and seeing all of the n- nonsense that I post when I'm bored, you can find us at Instagram.com slash that was genius, or indeed at that was genius in the app. And you can also find us on Facebook if you search for That Was Genius Podcast. And on Twitter if you search for that underscore was underscore genius and why have i chosen different names for every platform tom because i'm an idiot excellent we should probably think of a topic for next week shouldn't we tom yes we should i'm wondering whether we can link it to what we've done today is there anything you've come across that you think might be a good topic dicks (laughs) famous people called richard done right That's actually, should we actually, should we yeah, actually do that? I think we that? should actually do that. I think that's suitably random. We're going to do famous <laughs> Richards. Okay, so next week's topic is uh, famous Richards, or to put it another way, big dicks. <laughs> <laughs> well, that more or less finishes us off for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this podcast, as of course you have, and we have very much as well. Please do subscribe to us on your favourite podcasting app so you can hear from us every week. It makes a huge difference to us. And if you want to leave us a little review as well, that would be lovely. And on that note, (laughs) it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. We'll see you next week.